recording thing. Okay, perfect. Do I have to push a button, or are we are we all good? Nope, everything's okay. taken care of. You just gotta yeah. speak when it's your when you feel like speaking. I feel like speaking the whole time. I'm going to monopolize this conversation. <laughs> That's fine with me. I'm going to take a nap. I, I, I thought that was my job as the resident Texan. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, anyway, this is the second Melville episode of Shoot to Piano Player French New Way podcast. Um, first one, if, I'm not sure when it's coming out. This will come out after, after first one at some point, uh, was Second Breath with Aaron Gambrell. And she'll be on the next two Melville ones, because she likes Melville movies, so why not have her on? But this is, uh, uh yeah, uh, and, uh, yeah, I'll, we'll get to them. Uh, anyway, um, the, this one is just a special on, well, I just want an excuse to watch Melville, because I've never seen much, uh, prior to the season, and, uh, I decided to have uh, well, J Dog, you're back. Yet we haven't recorded in a, in a little bit. Mm-hmm. You finally watched movies. I give a shit about. No, I'm just kidding. I just busy schedule. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, so uh, I I have on two guests this time, one returning guest uh, from earlier season and one other person who I think uh, Justin, this might be your fifth, fourth or fifth time on here. Possibly. I was on twice for Kurosawa, once for Spike Lee, um, when he, when we did Miracle at St. Anna. So this oh. is, me, I think, my fourth appearance and second World War II appearance. Yeah, I'm gonna ask you: is, is this is this your uh, this your genre, World War II? Not intentionally, but it sure as heck seems to be something I find myself going through a lot. Hmm. Oh, and other guests. I thought you uh, said this was hard. Justin's uh, favorite was World War II. That's what you said. I, I don't know who you're talking about. Uh-huh. I mean, this is my favorite... Army of Shadows is one of my favorite films of all time, period. So, I, I suppose by default, I am kind of the World War II person on this podcast. Okay. Excellent. Other guest, uh, who are you? Uh, I'm Martin Kessler. I'm, uh, I probably have similar numbers, uh, if Anyone's been listening to previous seasons, and um, I'm, yeah, you, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me back. Oh yeah, you're welcome. You, you, you're kind of like uh, Melanie Daniels to us. It's like if we just need someone to talk about something, I know I c- we can rely on you. <laughs> we can rely on a very good conversation. I, I appreciate that. I strive to be reliable. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, this. Uh, so I asked you two, uh, you two guys, to pick the movie, uh, the movie we're going to talk about, and one, uh, uh, Justin, you said yours, Army of Shadows, and I have a, I have a dumb story about how I learned about that movie that I'll get to in a bit. And Martin, wh- why did you pick uh, uh, Priests? Well, originally I was going to try to come on to talk about a different Melville film. And then when you sort of mentioned this as an option, I was like, ooh, well, I, <laughs> I kind of want to talk about Leon Moran Priest because it's uh, it's a film that I feel like there's a lot to unpack and dig into, and it's it's really interesting. Versus, like, I, I mean, I think all the Melville crime films are great. They're sort of rightfully thought of as being, you know, some of the best crime films ever and are probably what people think of when they think of Melville first and foremost, which I get, but 
uh, like some of those, I, I feel like I might run out of things to talk about kind of <laughs> quickly. I might be like, oh yeah, it's really, it's really great. It's very like sparse and interesting, and uh, oh, that, that's a great performance. And I don't know, Liam Morin, it's it's a little bit different. I was thinking then like some of the the crime films, um, or even like Army of Shadows, which is also sort of like a wartime resistance Melville movie, but the. You know, I always think of how like quiet some of the later Melville films are. There's very little dialogue in some of them. This one, it's like all talking. This is maybe his talkiest film. <laughs> I mean, even in some of his earlier films, like of course his first film's all about uh, this French family that's deciding not to speak to this uh, resident Nazi as, as a form of resistance. But again, like Leon Marin Priest, it's just full of conversations and it gets kind of philosophical in these debates yeah. and but yeah, at the same time there's a lot of like emotional undercurrent to it it's not just like dry in a vacuum kind of debate but it's it's an interesting one yeah i felt like uh romare but you, uh, this, this, that's not a slight but this will, this will sound mean but like but more interesting than romare <laughs> I, I always have a hard time with romare because like his films are so talky and I'm, I'm a slow reader <laughs> like this is just like th- this is a martin problem not a romare problem but I'll, I'll be watching and i realize like i just missed like a chunk of what's going on because i'm trying to like look at the screen and follow the I, i'm not saying like you know it'd be better mm-hmm. dubbed or anything like that it's just like i have a hard time with some of the romare films because yeah. they can be so talky like that and there's still a blind spot for me oh. uh like it, it, eric romare right yes yep. that, yeah he's a blind spot for me i'm, I'm Ashamed to say, the, the most I know of his work is the um, homage Reiner Werner Fassbinder paid to him in an early film, where a murder victim is named Erica Romare. But hmm. that's the extent of my experience with yeah. him. Yeah, Romare is more philosophical to a point where it's like, I, I don't know what you're talking about, and this is going for twenty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel that. <laughs> I thought his problem was that he he somehow misconstrued filmmaking as his an opportunity to masturbate as much as possible. But you're probably right. Um, I mean, he was. It, this he, this reminded me. Yeah, I mean, Romero was. Of, oh, sorry. No, I, I was just like it had it had a that it had a, a traditional like movie to us. Uh, storytelling style where like as time passes you know our characters are updated or you see the environment around them changing in a way that i'm not familiar with melville doing like i don't i feel like most of the or i i've seen that two other ones and it seemed like it was like minute by minute we're going to see exactly what our characters are doing because you know usually it's a heist or whatever or somebody's going to betray like army army of uh army of darkness <laughs> army of shadows was closer to what i'm familiar with and even then it's a fair bit of a departure from say the samurai which takes place over the course of a few days and army is probably a few months and leon morin is at least a few years i yeah i don't get to my dumb story about army of shadows how i learned about it it would have been probably 2004 when I first started to like movies and uh, my friend told me about the site Metacritic and I remember going on there and I saw Army of Shadows had like a 100% or something and I was like Army of Darkness is 100% 
I, I didn't know I was the only one who loved that movie. And it took years for me to realize that Army of Darkness and Army of Shadows were two different movies. I mean, I, I would dearly love to see the movie where depressed French resistance fighter Philippe Gautier goes to ye old, ye old medieval times and does battle with the Necronomicon, but that would be... That would be something, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even know what a chainsaw is. I know. Well, he's a civil engineer. I think he probably knows what a chainsaw is. Oh, he's, that's true. He just may not have used one himself. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, well, before we get really into it, um, Justin, what's your history with Melville and or French New Wave? Um, French New Wave is... My history with that is is spotty. There are there are a few cases where I know the the big I, I know the names and I know the I know a few of the of the big 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 works, but it's a little bit of a black box to me. I think I first discovered Melville. It it definitely happened in college, and I think it must have happened either in conversation with one of the other film students there. Or in conversation with my mentor, the um, literature professor who is a better film professor than the actual film professor. Um, but I ultimately saw, I think the first of his I saw was The Samurai, which I impulse bought on a Criterion sale. Hmm. And then I saw Army of Shadows um, my first year of graduate school when I was, when I made the mistake of being a, a grad student living with undergrads in a hmm. dorm. That was. That, that was a time, but I wound up commandeering the communal television to watch Melville's masterful two-and-a-half-hour study of the moral necessity and terrible cost of resistance to Nazi Germany. Hmm. And, like, what was kind of great about that experience was that I was the only one who was there for the whole time, but there were people going in and out, like, what's this? It's interesting. And, like, some first some first year was, like, getting really into it for a little while there. So that's got, that's pretty cool. Hmm. Yeah, um, Kessler. Uh, did what's your? I don't think I asked you about your French New Wave history on the Chala episode. Yeah, I don't know if that came up. I know well, Melville specifically. I know like I, I was kind of introduced to through my father, but it wasn't really like, hey, the, the, you know, this is a Jean-Pierre Melville movie. It was just sort of like, oh, these are cool French crime movies. You know, watching The Red Circle and. I didn't really have that kind of a tourist context for them. And then later on, I I think, I, I guess when I was in film school, I was borrowing stuff from the library just to watch. There they was like, a, there were a lot of films available to rent at the York University Library. And uh, I think I was, I mean, talk about like lo- looking for the wrong film. I think I was looking for Diary of a Country Priest, the Bresson film. And then mm-hmm. like Leon Marin Priest came up Instead, so I think that was the first time I watched it. Was just like, ah, it's a French movie. I'll <laughs> watch that. Uh, it's a French movie from the '60s. It's got to be good. Uh, I mean, it, it's kind of interesting to talk about Melville in relation to the new wave because, like, on one hand, I mean, you could probably make the case that like Bob Le Flambeur is the first real French new wave movie. I know this is sort of like a debated thing if it's like. 400 Blows or Breathless or uh, Paris Belongs to Us but like I, I think Court. you can make a oh sorry La, La, La Point Court 
Sure. Like, I mean, you know, this is like sort of, it's a hard thing to kind of pin down exactly where that started. But like Melville, I think he's one of those filmmakers that a lot of people in the new wave emulated to some extent. You mentioned Romare, but I, I know like everyone at one time was basically boring for Melville, I think, to some extent, you know, especially maybe Godard. And then later Doesn't on... Doesn't he appear in Breathless? Yeah, like, yes. I, well, I mean, I, I think that's where he met Belmondo, and he, that's where he got Belmondo to sign on to Leon Morin Priest uh, before huh. Breathless came out and made Belmondo, like, the biggest star ever. <laughs> so he, yeah. he kind of lucked out where he got him to sign on to this. But I, I think, like, <laughs> later on, after... <clears throat> Uh, I, well, I guess like later on in the '60s, uh, mm-hmm. Melville kind of had like a, almost like a falling out with these like new wave guys, where you know all of a sudden he wasn't cool anymore, <laughs> and I don't think he wanted to kind of work like in it that happened area because yeah. of Army, which had the bad luck to come out in well, the middle um, of, the six, of the '60 of '68, and everything happened there. I mean that that was sort of like the culmination of that, but I, I think like there was sort of a a long road there where. You know, like Melville, I, I don't know if he was really interested in doing these kinds of genre films as like the self-reflexive sort of deconstructive thing that, you know, guys like Godard were doing. I think he was making them sincerely being like, you know, what's cool, America. And like I think that, that was kind of getting him into trouble and sort of distancing him from the, you know, a lot of the new wave stuff. And then like Army of Shadows was just sort of the you know, the levy breaking, that was kind of the thing that got him into trouble and kind of, I mean, I'll, it's got a weird release history and it was sort of buried in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, and obviously uh, he still had films that came out after that. But I, I think like, you know, you have to understand that like Melville at that point in time was not cool and he was not really like uh, somebody who would necessarily lump in with these new wave filmmakers at that point. So he's got sort of a weird, rocky history with um, being associated with the French New Wave, but it's it's interesting. Yeah, because uh, uh, like, uh, like, I think of French New Wave more as the 60s, and Melville started in the 40s, and that's kind of the reason why I'm not sure if he counts. But like, he seemed to be like the one mainstream French filmmaker that they liked, because they were dismissive. Mm-hmm. Well, the Cachet du Cinema people yeah. were dismissive of the mainstream French cinema, which is kind of part of why some of that's hard to come by now, because you know criticism, like what gets praised, gets preserved. Well, you know, that whole cycle, and so, uh, but so Melville was like, you know, the one of the guys they actually liked. So, the, the, so I, I was curious, like, other people's thoughts on it, because I'm, because I don't really think of him as new wave. I think of him as more as like yeah. a, a, like a French director who was friends with some of these people at, at one point it was like buddies with Cocteau like I think Cocteau saw his um, his first feature film the uh, Silence de la Mer and he was like oh like we're gonna make Les Affants Terribles together and um, you know so you can almost associate him more with guys like Cocteau or like Bresson's another one who like he's working contemporary with the French New Wave but like I would never put Bresson in with French New Wave, so like you know, not quite the same. Yeah, scene. yeah. So like Melville, he kind of skirts it a little bit. Like I think it's it's totally fair to talk about, uh, <coughs> you know, a couple of his films, especially in the fifties and sixties, in relation to New Wave. But it's kind of like he's, he's sort of on the fringe there. <laughs> I, yeah, I think uh, you're right. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, Joel, what's your thought since now you've, now you've seen a couple more? He doesn't feel like a French New Wave director to me. He he feels... Uh, I think why somebody might try to stick him in that category is that uh, whether or not you believe in the theory, he is an auteur. Like, you can tell when you've got a Melville movie, especially if you're watching a couple in a row, These uh, the tropes that make his stuff special. So... Like, uh, when I think of French New Wave, I think of things that people weren't typically doing in mainstream movie, you know, uh, and there there was some reflection of that kind of like in Ar- Army of Shadows with the uh, kind of neo-realistic stuff that was going on, uh, characters' actions, taking the time to, to leave spaces and, you know... Uh, seeing every part of like the decision making process like especially the scene where they were going to execute the the traitor guy like that was that was drawn out you saw every bit of the process there it's like that's that that feels like something that they try to do in contemporary like um <laughs> like military thrillers like uh I'm thinking of for some reason, I keep thinking of George Clooney movies like The American or, um, or the, yeah, The American. That other, that Hayley other George Clooney movie, uh, <laughs> The Men Who Stare at Goats. Siriana? Yes, that's the one. No, I was th- yes, Syriana was the one oh. I was thinking of. Hmm. It's also funny, uh, to, like if you see Mel. Have any of you guys seen Magnet of Doom? That like uh, final no. one he did with Belmondo that led out of the three. It's the one that to me feels like the most like he's trying to work in that like French New Wave like it's the one that feels most like a Godard film like a mid-60s Godard film and I, I think it's like Melville uh, yeah, it's probably his worst film but I, I think like something about it just doesn't work and it almost feels like that was sort of a, a turning point for him where after that like he, he's going off and doing like uh, Le Deuxième Souffle and uh, Le Samurai and Army of Shad like that, that was kind of the one where it's almost like you can feel him being like ah like I'm not cut out for this like art film stuff. I'm just gonna make, you know, um, not, not to say that the, the others aren't artistic, but I, I think like he he just wasn't gonna work in that same area that that guys like Godard were. You know, I, I think he Did, sort of realized he wasn't to. like cut, like that's not what I'm I'm good at. I'm good at doing, you know, Army of Shadows. Yeah, and uh, I mentioned this in the second breath episode. I'll mention it again. So, like, the first Melville I saw was The Samurai about 10 years ago, I think it was. And I thought at the time it was the most boring movie I'd ever seen. <laughs> and it turned me off of watching French New Wave movies because I watched that and uh, Alphaville back to back. Okay. And I was like, okay. French New Wave is garbage. I'm not going to watch this shit anymore. And I, then, I, <laughs> then I switched to Kurosawa after that and. That became like my new thing, movie wise. And so, like, part of the season is basically the origin story of this podcast is what you yeah. just keep at. Yeah, more or less. It's like part of the season was like I guess I should revisit *Le Samurai* ten years later to see if I like it now. And uh, haven't broken down an episode yet, so we will see if I've I've changed my mind on that one. But. Uh, I do like Melville a whole lot after watching all these all the ones I've seen so far so far just like he's 
it's not always like he's not my favorite of the ones we covered so far, but like it's always entertaining. It's always fascinating, but like it's it's also kind of like like don't don't say popcorn movie, but like these aren't philosophical debates or like in art or, or, or experimental things. These are like just making a like a movie movie. Let's make I a mean, muscular, thoughtful motion picture. Priest is definitely a philosophical movie. That's probably the one that. Like that, this is the first time I've had any of their philosophy garbage like actually appeal to me in like talking about it. You know, the 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 welcoming priest that is not immediately like, oh, you don't believe in God? Get the fuck out of here! Like, why am I even talking to you? You know, it takes what she says and and it's like he has something prepared for almost every situation until it gets you know too personal. But I, I love the way that they you know, handle their discussions about belief and God is a concept and all these things like, and this is coming from somebody who's, I'm I'm not an atheist. I'm not an agnostic, but uh, I don't believe in, (laughs) I don't believe in God in any sense that most people do. Uh, So I I just, I I, I think that's a good perfect way to approach this film because like Melville was a secular Jew like that's that's who's making this Leon Marin film it's not somebody who's like I'm a Catholic and let me explain all my Catholic beliefs to you and I I think part of the reason why the philosophical kind of debating is interesting is is there's also stuff going on under the surface and there's like a natural kind of tension or seduction going on which just makes it really compelling and seeing her you know trying to tease out like maybe a negative reaction from him and he says the right thing and it is actually sort of seductive to her this idea of catholicism and i mean the movie's called leon Marin priest but we should say like he's not really the main character uh you know he's no. a, an important character but it's it's really uh emmanuel riva's character yeah uh, and uh, troll do you know what other movie she is in that we covered um this is much later she's uh a recent movie she was in that we talked about. Uh, is she in like uh, Amor or something? Yes, Amor. Oh, okay. Who is she oh, in wow. Amor? Is she a Amor lady? Yeah, she's a she's, <laughs> she's a, a she's, she's a Amor lady. <laughs> the one that Jean Louis. Well, it, it's a Hanukkah movie. Hanukkah movie. Han, the one. We're, we're, the we're the old doing lady it. in the movie. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think she yeah. only passed away kind of recently, like in the past couple yeah. of years. So. I think it may have been as recently as last year, yeah. Although that, or that might be I, I, I keep saying last year, and what I really mean is like 2019. <laughs> like, that's sort of yeah. what, what's happened to my mind in the what, past. Was it uh, Belmondo who died last year then? Be- yes. Belmondo died, yeah, just last year. Um, uh, yeah, same day as Michael K. Williams. Oof. And yet, still, what's his name is still alive. Uh, Jared Leto. There are a couple of people. I thought you were going to say Godard, but... <laughs> you guys are naming all kinds Godard's of Godard's going to outlive but... all of us. He's just too spiteful. He can't be still. No, I'm, t- I'm talking about a yeah. uh, super Gibson? handsome French guy that's in... Uh... Alain Delon? Yes. Oh. I mean, yeah, yeah. He has some troublesome stuff about him. But we're not, we're probably going to cover that in a Samurai episode. At least mention yeah, some right? of that yeah. stuff. And it probably oh, oh. she's been in like a bunch of yeah. bunch of classic films like Hiroshima Mon Amour. Uh, it's obviously great classic film, uh, but she's worked with like I don't know a little while ago. I was going down her IMDb list just like in preparation. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. She worked with like Kislovsky and she worked with like Fernando Arabal and just like all these interesting 
people throughout her career where she wasn't like the most prolific actress but i feel like she she just has this really kind of amazing Hmm. collection of, of performances and films that she was in and i don't know she's really really great in this film yeah. and it's such an interesting like i feel like melville too you get this impression that he's he's like a really macho filmmaker you know especially if you're watching like some of the the crime films where they're, they're basically like no women characters or like you know they'll they'll be kind of deliberately flattened out as characters and like i, I don't know I, I feel like it's really interesting putting this uh, Emmanuel Riva character. I, I think her name is Barney. Barney, yeah. Yeah. Bar- yeah. Um, at, yeah you know, the like center that. of the story and like the kind of emotional complexity in her character, I, I feel like is really sensitively explored and really fleshed out in a way that, like, I don't know. I, I feel like if you go into Leon Marin Priest after watching Le Samurai, you're probably not expecting that, oh, wait, that, that guy can make this film too. <laughs> so it, yeah. it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the previous one we did on Second Breath, Anne Gambrell brought up like, because in general she doesn't like super masculine movies, but the ones she's on are like are going to Samurai, Second Breath, and uh, Red Circle, which are like very masculine. And the one that's the most feminine is the one, like she's not she's not going to be on, which feels a little ironic. But, uh, so turns the world. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it feels like Martin. We're talking about feel kind of like Howard Hawks, like ish with like the flexibility, because mm. like I don't know, like something about Melville's makes me think of Howard Hawks, and maybe it's just like the rough and tumble, like wild man quality they have. But like honestly, like I, I feel like see like they they seem, seem like similar spirits to me. I, I can yeah, I, that I get tracks that. yeah yeah. <laughs> I and mean, I'm wondering. I'm not. Was I am curious. Like, did Hawks have work experience? Because part of what shaped a lot shaped a lot of Melville's outlook, and especially for these films, was his time in the Resistance. And like that, Army of Shadows is on some level autobiographical, even if it is an adaptation of a novel written about the Resistance during the height of the war. But hmm. uh, is Hawks the one that had an eye patch? Uh, that was I mean, there's a couple. Of, uh, oh. I mean, was John that Ford, Ford had an eye patch? Yeah, it was um, Ford who had the eye patch, and Ford was definitely in World War Two. Yeah, he was that filmmaker. Uh, I think it was that Midway filming. There was that yeah, book, yeah, Ford shot back, Midway which is about like all the five. Um, I got that book somewhere on my shelf. I don't feel like running and grabbing it. There, um, I've, I've actually had it on like my shelf five... too. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> There's like the five. Hawks might have been one of them. Uh, I think Capra was one. Um, Ford was one. Yeah, the five on the, the five that Mark Harris wrote about were Ford, George Stevens, John Houston, William Wyler, and Frank Capra. Okay, so Hawks isn't in that much, but um, I, I might should read up. I think that that might be onto something, <laughs> but uh, but you're, I think you're definitely right about like Melville's experience as like a real resistance fighter during World War II, kind of informing a lot of his filmmaking, and sometimes in ways that you don't necessarily expect. Like there's a lot of uh, ambiguity in allegiances in his stories. I mean, it comes up in the crime films where we have 
you know, sometimes good criminals, sometimes bad cops, all that stuff. But like, you know, even in Leon Marin Priest, there's a lot of characters who just don't necessarily act the way that you might expect from like their kind of ideological allegiance. And I think that's part of the point he's trying to explore is that, you know, there's something about uh, looking at people as individuals and the ideology kind of comes second um yeah i i think that's that's sort of what it's exploring in a way and yeah, that is definitely particularly interesting because um if you wanted to be reductive you could describe leon maureen priest as the story of the fraught relationship between a deeply lonely single mom and a sexy man child <laughs> <Sure>. yeah <laughs> but it, uh, bo- both Barney and Le- and Le- and Leon are fascinating as ind- as individuals. You have a, you have the the lapsed Catholic widow of a Jewish man trying to take care of her kid at the height of initially a fairly lackadaisical Italian occupation. <laughs> the Italians, when they come the Italians are like, so fucking foppish. It's so over the top. It's like, wait, was that really the uniform? And then, you know, yeah. they're laughing at it and like, it, it's, and then, you know, of course, when the Germans roll in, you're, you're not laughing at that point. But I mean, one thing I found striking was that the first thing that is apparent about the Italian fascists is that they're fucking dweebs. The, the <laughs> doofy hats and the lackadaisical marching. And when the Germans roll on in, their messaging is much more effective. Like, we are scary! We are the master face! And then you like you really look at the way they're marching and the fact that they have that um, poor baton twirler, and it's like, no, we are equally ridiculous. We're just way better at being hateful murderers. <laughs> Yeah, it feels like like you you talk saying that sounds like um uh closely watched trains where like once the the the, the Nazis occupying the town in that time uh, it, in the first part of the movie it's like it, there's kind of goofballs whatever then the real ones come in it's like oh shit's got real and like n- dad's here yeah yeah I feel like there's a connection between. I mean, I don't know what the Italian army was before World War II broke out, but, like, because of German uh, army, like, strict regimens on, like, how people need to react to their uh, superiors, and, like, if you're marching, it is dead serious. Whether whether people think it's funny, like, you've got these people marching and playing instruments in front of us, like, uh, it, it's still intimidating when the Germans appear, you know, down that street. It's like... Oh, World War Two is happening, but you know it's not really affecting us. And then it's like, oh, World War Two is here. I thought I thought you came earlier. Oh, oh shit. Uh, you oh, look, people are being disappeared. Yeah, and and people people you know and you've known for years, who who have been saying like, oh, we need to cooperate, or like showing like, wait, how far are you willing to go to cooperate? And uh, you were t- uh, Martin, you were talking about like people. It, it, like the person as an individual, it, it yeah. seems like a huge cowardice you know, act throw to be these, like, like little wrenches into the things. Like um, there's that one German soldier, I think they call him Gunther, mm-hmm. Gunther, uh, who's like actually pretty sweet to the little girl, and it, you know, she's like, oh, that was my friend Gunther. And then you have Americans later on in the film. You have two Americans, and like one of them is awful when he's trying to invite himself up into um, Barney's 
bedroom and he's like very insistent and it's like yeah for me that was sort of like Melville being like yeah Germans are the bad guys Americans are the good guys but like you still have like people who you know there's there's nice people there's terrible people exactly like I, I think he's sort of messing up that kind of black and white distinction that you might have going in yeah, there's a fun. It reminded me in a fun way of um, Jesse Johnson's "Hell Hath No Fury" from last year. Great little um, B actioner, where the Americans are venal bastards. Most of the Nazis are horrible people, but the chief Nazi is all the more horrible because he's not some hardline ide- ideologue. Mm. He's just like, I mean it for the money, and like you know, Hitler can go fuck himself, but. I get all this money being an SS colonel. Mm. Yeah. And it's also, he's also played by the great Daniel Bernhardt, AKA Jean-Claude Gostarn. Um, man, it's a fucking phenomenal performance and just a neat, neat, neat little siege film. Hmm. Yeah. That's on my list for it to watch it. Uh, but I think it's on Hulu now. Uh, I, yeah, I believe it is, but Hulu has, um, Indian action movies too. So, that's been I, I, I prioritize Reasonable. Indian action over most movies if I have the time for it <laughs> um, it reminds me of uh, in general Della, Della whatever Rivera. That one. Yeah. yeah Rivera uh, the way that he always is communicating with that top level Nazi guy and you know they have this like respectful attitude towards each other and he's like you know I'm, I'm trying to help blah 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 like he seems like a perfect, perfectly reasonable guy and at the end it's because he thinks that he knows exactly what the character of uh, the general that he's dealing with actually is and at the end when he shows not to be a coward they, like the disbelief on the man's face is like this is kind of like breaking my worldview I didn't okay <laughs> whatever and like that's that's a real purple uh people moment like like a almost an empathetic moment going on there and this this movie is so full of empathy yeah 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 it's yeah Yeah, like one one of the best things about this movie this superficial but when i think of bill mondo i think of him as like a bro-y goofball kind of doofus and seeing him in Mm -hmm. this was like oh holy shit he can, yeah, he like, can be do serious. suave and sensual. Yeah. Well, he's, I mean, like, he was such a movie star. And I feel like, you know, he was a great actor, but he was an even better movie star where, you know, he's almost like Humphrey Bogart and Jackie Chan rolled into one, you know? <laughs> like, there's, there's something about his, his range and his uh, charm that it, it's incredibly compelling in this. And the way he And his physicality, like, film, in action yeah. movies, physical, like, he would do his own stunts. Oh, my God. The Man from Rio, like, it's... That's an awesome movie. I <laughs> just love him. And, like, I'll, I'd rather watch like a Belmondo action film from like you know a little bit later in his career than this. Uh, like, I'd rather watch that than like a James Bond film. You know, they're mm. so fun those movies. But in here, like, he's playing it kind of serious, but he's just got that like sex appeal and that charm, and it's so uh, effective. I, I think in how he's utilizing that in this movie. And part of what makes it so fun is that it it isn't just Belmondo leveraging his charm and beauty it's it's leon on some level doing this because it's as close as he can get to romantic and sexual intimacy without betraying his oath and 
I mean, yeah, the, in, in that like last conversation yeah. he has, he he's like, yeah, this has been my entire life, and I became a priest in part to get away from my horrific home life. I haven't really got a chance to be a person. Hmm. One thing I really like in the performance is how, I mean, you feel a lot of that under the surface. It remains unspoken. And then there's that moment where Barney's like, well, you know, would you marry me? You know, if you're Protestant, would you marry me? And he gets so mad, like he's, you know, when he smacks that hatchet down. And I think it's, um, like, partly I think it's because, like, he really does wander. But it's also, like, you cross that line. And now that the, the unspoken thing is spoken, you can't take it back. <laughs> like, it's out in the open. It's not know. a game anymore. Yeah, it's, it's not just this, like, playful, seductive kind of thing. It's like, oh, shit, like, now the feelings are out. And, like, I mean, that that was, like, a really kind of relatable moment, I found. Like, you know, we've run into these moments sometimes in our lives when it's like, you know, you have some kind of playful thing with somebody and then it hits that turning point where it's like, oh, wait, this is real now. Do you, you know, you either have to go down that path or it's, like, broken off forever. And, uh, you know, I really kind of felt for him in that moment but it's also like i don't know it's it's a sad scene and he i think he plays it really perfectly yeah that 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 moment um i have sam deegan's book uh the legacy of world war ii in european art house cinema from i think it came out last year and in her section on french resistance movies that exact moment is discussed uh in terms of uh like him expressing his like uh, the phrasing is his masculine might and uh, an absolute statement of his determination to be abstinent. And it's like, and in that moment, like, even without reading that at the time, it was just, like, a powerful moment of, like, oh, shit, like, one, he, like, he really is a, like, like a like a, a man with, like, human urges. But also, yeah. it's like, like, this could turn violent, but it didn't turn violent. I mean, I mean it did on, on the wood, but, like, it, it's just, like, this unpredictable... <laughs> But you know what I mean, like, because there's yeah. like, there's no. Yeah, because you just feel him like kind of lose control for that one moment, and then when he like smacks the, the wood with the hatchet, it's like, ooh, you know, you just feel that kind of sense of danger come off him for a second. He doesn't like to be vulnerable that way, and he he likes to be, in charge to the you know every scene where he had to put his, he didn't have to, he put his hands on somebody to just move them aside. And, like, I think there is commentary on, like, well, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't care if he's rude or not. You know, he moves, he, I, I don't, I don't know the, the context, but the, the fact that he's, like, I'm a priest, I guess it's okay for just me to, like, move people. And, you know, I'm not used to seeing that in movies. And if that happened in real life, I'd be like, why did you just touch me? You know? Mm-hmm. And, and so when, yeah, that's, that's the scene with him chopping the wood. I don't know what his motivation is. He can already tell something's weird between them. And then when she brings in that, that's like this moment where he can he can get this crack in what he thinks the world is for him. Uh, but he decides, no, I'm not going to get a crack in that. I don't even want to consider that there might be a crack in, in my beliefs and the way everything is handled. Like, I, I'm above this, so I'm going to get the hell out of here. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to pretend like nothing happened the next day. But I like just... also with these emotional games, like, I, I mean, another great part is, um, like, as they're developing this kind of connection and this intimacy as she's going over and having these debates with him. And then 
when she finds out there's another woman and she's like, oh yeah, he gave me this book and he told me this. And it's like, you feel that this like feeling of jealousy that this like private intimate thing, like, oh wait, it's, it's like almost like he's emotionally cheating on her when you hear that, you know, or at least from her perspective. Um, I was wondering too, what you guys think about the, the way the film approaches her um, bisexuality. Like, I, I think, you know, there's this section at the beginning where she's, um, before she meets Leon, where she's uh, attracted to this woman who's working above her at work, and it's she's it's openly really lusting over it. her coworker. Yeah, yeah, and it's almost like I mean, there's a political kind of dimension to it too, where like the only men around were occupying soldiers, and I, I think like that kind of feeds a little bit into it because. Um, but like also just the way it treats her sexuality, I thought was like really kind of frank and, and not judgmental and empathetic. Like I don't, it, it's sort of rare to see in films. Um, just it, it treated that kind of. I, I guess it's like tr- open treated with an incredibly like soft and yeah. like creative hand. Like we're not these women aren't going to kiss. There's not not a relationship going to start. But there's. But once again, intimacy, like the, the part where she's talking about it and the, the obviously Italian woman, like nobody else looks like this lady, <laughs> comes over and she leans over her and puts her arms on both sides of her. And it's like this, this is like an intimate touch. Yep. You know, we get the HR department on the phone. <laughs> Yeah, Unless you like, like it, <laughs> but then you know. I mean, not to me, that's not gross. Like that was like borderline erotic. It's like, geez, I'm oh, sure. they're touching. Oh. Whoa. No, it's an incredibly that's... sensual moment. And Definitely. All like, like this is a in this time and this place. There were not many options for intimacy of any sort, physical or emotional, whether that was because of long-standing bigotries inflamed by the occupation or the absent like the absence of a solid hunk of the community with the men largely off at off at war or in the resistance and even in cases where there is intimacy there is a barrier whether it's whether whether it's Leon's genuine commitment to his to being a priest and to some extent his manipulative streak or um, the pretty Italian French um, secretary in, in her case um, she ha- she cuts things she loses her brother to the Nazis and that just kind of wrecks anything for her because oh hey beloved family member almost certainly murdered horribly the, the way the voiceover describes her like almost like aging overnight too like you just feel like oh you know you when you get hit by something really hard like that and, and her before yeah. I, I i don't recall the name of her, of, of her of the performer but the way she shifts her body language is just the the slouch and the stilt the stilt the stiltedness she brings to her walk that's such a great piece of acting mm-hmm. yeah and like it's i mean, to intimacy everything is in tight spaces it's either like that that cramped home like she has a couple places but it's always like a cramped home uh, a small office it's uh, Belmondo's room or the confessional it's all these like very tight intimate spaces where like you know like people are have to spend time with each other yeah and there's also like I, uh, the design of 
of Leon's of Leon's apartment is super interesting because it is so Spartan that it in theory it should be hard to feel enclosed in there, and yet it it contracts as the relationship heats up, as moments of tension rise and fall. It become it. The sheer Spartanness of it means that the eye is drawn strictly to Riva and Belmondo, and that's 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 a really excellent craft. And like this, like cinematography is uh, gorgeous and super smart because like there's some parts where, um, where like uh, towards the end, I wrote down like where I think he's discussing pride, and you see her. I can't. I didn't write down the exact line, but she is in darkness in her half the room and, and Bramando is in light in his half the room and it's like this very stark uh not subtle way of getting like across the, the like the theme of what's happening but it's just like like the way everything is shot like it's very clear there's a point to it and like you don't have to be like like a film student or whatever to know it's like it's it's very blatant that's what the similar with like how things are arranged like what you're supposed to yep. think and feel in that moment for sure, yeah, and it, mm-hmm. it, it it is muscular without banging you over the head with a with with a, with, with a um, frying pan. Sure. Is that an option? Can I can I hire somebody next uh, time? Well, I, I mean, like, what would you think of as like as like beating you over the head frying pan cinema? Like Alejandro Gonzalez in Iritu? or sure, <laughs> uh, Spike Lee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Spike Lee's a pretty good choice. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's yeah, Spike. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Justin, uh, I'm surprised you, you, you remember the name of that movie because that the Spike Roller Two movie is might be the worst uh, Spike Lee movie. Miracle at Saint Anna. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I I will happily watch either Leon Maureen Priest or Army of Shadows, or Overlord or Hell Hath No Fury or uh, oh good gravy like. Any, it is that is a bad movie in fascinating ways, but it is a really awful movie. Yeah, it's yeah, there's a reason no one talks about that Spike joint because it's, yeah. it's, it's it's not even his worst. I think it's his worst because it's just so boring. Yeah, I yeah, think she, she hate me she is his worst. It's like technically worse, but it's it's not forgettable it's, in the way that Miracle at yeah. <laughs> All no, I've seen of she hate me is that screenshot you sent me, Spencer. And yeah. the one that Spencer wasn't from uh, that wasn't from she hate me. That was from a medical exam that Spencer actually got to perform <laughs> on the actor. <laughs> okay, oh, Here's oh, a, I'm gonna Andy send you guys the video. Swimming upstream. Uh, I... <laughs> uh, well, no, no, Spencer, no. You brought up. Um, uh, closely watched strains, which I, I think like that would be a really good pairing with this. And the the way I mean, it's, it's a little bit different, but I, I like how it touches on stuff like uh, I mean, this idea of sexuality as a form of rebellion under occupation. People talk about that, but it's kind of hard to articulate why that was a thing. And yeah, like to me, Leon Marin, even without having any kind of actual sex in it at all, kind of communicates that uh so i think that's kind of an interesting film to pair it with but because uh, it's i need to I know, it's, that. it's like like to call it a war film isn't quite like it's an occupation film you know or even like the, the specter of the holocaust is kind of over this film as well but it's it's almost like a different genre than what you think of as like war action mm-hmm. films you know this is like a period 
drama, really, I guess. Yeah, it feels more like like it's you know it, it's a, a romance between a, a woman and her and her local priest, but it also mm-hmm. happens. The World War Two happens to be happening behind them. Sure, and but the World yeah. War Two plays plays a role in, yeah. in why this relationship is even happening. That, that, and, that is true, you know. but like it's, but it's but it's not the it's, it's not about World War Two. I mean, it, it right. kind of is, but it's more about like the it's a the people. it's a different it, it is a civilian's perspective on life in occupied in, in occupied France. Yeah, like it's it's not the, the American like or like rah rah rah. We're gonna like Americans were the best. The Allies were the best. It's like it's. Just shows like no war war is shitty for everyone. Yeah, I mean that's part of what I find so compelling about Army of Shadows is that the protagonists are deeply heroic, absolutely in the right, and it is fucking obliterating their souls. Yeah, yeah. Having to make having to make decisions that you feel like separate you from before it was something you could claim separated you from those that you considered your enemy, but you have to work right you have to work with these like very very strict rules otherwise everybody is dead like and badly yeah Uh, i wanted your there's a moment in uh leon uh more priests where it reminded me of uh uh len uh uh, the new uh harun movie uh specifically when she's like would you marry me and like asking yeah yeah, a certain moment in that in that recent movie which everyone should see it's it's uh uh, we talked about Harun a couple of times in the past some of his how is it spelled uh it's spelled it has a cat in it that's all I know (laughs) um how is it spelled uh l-i-n-g-u-i yeah, and then we. All right, right. cool. It's, it was it on. It was on movie last time I checked. I, I'm yeah. not sure if it's still up there. I think. Uh, like, is it a movie exclusive? I believe so. Uh, it's not, like I, I think it's probably going to stay up there. It's not like one of the ones that they rotate out. Yeah. But um, well, I will yeah. track it down then. Yeah. yeah. It's um, standard Haroon. It's very heavy, but done in a way that's very easy to digest. Yeah. I mean, Haroon's somebody who's also like phenomenal at subtext and kind of putting characters into these like moral gray areas which are really kind of fascinating um yeah like a screaming man is like you know yeah explicitly about that yeah you know like i know you liked it i i liked around a lot but i I think a screaming Mm -hmm. man's probably my favorite of his and we we talked about both over on flicks a while ago along with um sex okra and salted butter which is which is a comedy of his so it's a little bit less heavy but still heavy at times but um yeah yeah those those are all really really good yeah. uh, so uh oh and i don't know and i just click overall theme in in priest with like fascism and uh and like i can like it's remind me mama roma the pasolini movie in certain ways that yes, i totally. can't really explain but just felt like oh yeah i feel like like mama roma is like a cousin of this movie I mean, you're, you're, yeah, but just yeah. just because you're seeing like a small section of of these individuals' lives being affected by what what they're around them, like that's Mavarama doesn't take place during World War no. Two, but the aftermath is clear. Yeah, I, I think also like 
it's interesting that this film comes out in 1961 and it's it's like in some ways there's starting to be enough distance from the war that people can start talking about these things that are a little bit more complex than like good versus bad or you know the, the kind of stuff that you need to just get through the day I, I think when you're in a war or coming out of a war and I, I think the reality of it it's usually more messy and I think from somebody like Melville who really lived through that and really lived through like the ugly parts of that to kind of show that that period in history was like a very kind of messy and emotionally messy uh, politically messy you know and maybe spiritually messy even i don't know but uh, oh absolutely you know to to kind of come at that um you know and then of course return to it with the vengeance with the army of shadows which really feels like getting into the, the muck of how kind of complex and not yeah, black uh, and white the, the history can be I, I think yeah, it is uh, uh, Martin did you pick Priest because it's World War 2 because we're doing Army Shadows as a double feature of World War 2 Melville uh, no, I mean not specifically it's just like I don't oh, okay. know why I wanted to jump on I, I like talking about Belmondo I like this film okay. like I think <laughs> works I me. mean you know, like this doesn't feel as like overtly like I'm just making a film for entertainment like we were mm. kind of talking about before um, you know even though I think like there are always ideas that Melvis is exploring yeah. but like it is a really kind of watchable film I would say yeah. like, it's, it feels it feels like second breath it feels like kind of a dad movie but there's mm. the whole political angle to uh, uh, to army shadows that you wouldn't see in a standard like dad movie yeah oh, I, no. I don't know if we said that like Barney like is explicitly sort of communist in her, her values and that's like part of the reason why she's like I mean she targets she doesn't know it's Leon at first but she's just like I'm gonna go fuck with a priest basically is kind of where she's coming at this from and uh, I mean she like she picks Leon because his name is a peasant's name it's like he'll probably be either more receptive or more set off by my opening our conversation with religion is the opiate of the masses but what's great is like how much he's kind of agreeing with her at certain points like when she's talking about like what was it the arches in the church and he's like oh yeah i agree it's it's terrible and like he, he's actually yeah. like on the same page for a lot of things and i think that's kind of what catches her off guard is like she wasn't expecting him to be like you know in some ways you know somebody who's supposed to be like your ideological enemy to be like oh we're we're actually really really close to what we believe or we're like very close to being on the same page in a lot of respects and reva plays her, uh, i i love the way reva I, I love what reva does with her face when Leon proves receptive to her mm-hmm. opening salvo, and she's, she's just, what on earth? This is not what I expected. Also, this priest is hot. <laughs> well, and then like when he's giving her the the like his address and the time to drop by, it's it really is like inviting somebody out on a date. Like the, that's the delivery of it, and it's, it's just like explicit and kind of like, I. I mean, when she goes over to his uh, place that one time, like, does she think that, like, maybe they are going to hook up or something? I, I don't know. But, you know, it's all part of that game that they're playing for, the, you know, the first two-thirds of the movie where it's like, you know, is this going to get real or not? Hmm. Yeah. I don't have much else to say about Priest besides it's excellent. Uh, I like seeing a different side of Belmondo, but I really want to get into Army Shadows. And I want to yes. start off by, I had heard this movie for years, obviously, I, I t- said thing earlier, but uh, I didn't know what it was exactly. I went into it totally blind. I 
because Melville, I assume it must be like a crime movie or whatever, and it it's it's just like it 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 lived up to the hype. Like when people say it's one of the best like war movies ever made or movies ever made. Period. It's like yeah, this really is like one of the best it, movies I've ever seen. It really is that yeah. good. It yeah. really is. And like in a way, it's a crime film. You know, with the crimes against humanity and the war crimes and. Also, what they were doing was considered crimes, whether or not we agree with the people in power. True. True. Have and, uh, any of you seen this uh, HBO TV movie, Conspiracy, with Kenneth Branagh and Stanley Tucci? Yet. It's, no. um, it, it's one of my favorite films to kind of address the Holocaust, and it's about the Vannese Conference, where you have like, these top Nazis kind of sitting down and working out the the logistics and the legality of it it's like a really kind of disturbing film because it's all about like okay how can we do this legally <laughs> and like you sort of realize that the kind of um horror of just because somebody makes something legal doesn't mean it's, it's right and then kind of uh, getting into just like the logistics of, of how it's executed but um that's uh that's another war film that i would recommend to people if uh you know, if if you just want to ruin your day and feel bad for a week, yeah. that's a great film for that. Yeah, like I mean, also Armory of Shadows is a great ruin your day type of movie, which oh, I I, yeah. I always welcome. Gorgeously I, bleak. It, yeah. it is. What you, I think what 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 makes it successful there is that it is a tremendously humane movie, and it is fucking merciless. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I and, I have described a moment. And I guess the very end of the second act, when our protagonist's attempt to rescue their friend has utterly failed, and uh, and the younger, less confident brother of the rest of the resistance leader has gotten himself arrested in an attempt to be there to help his co- his fellow resistance member, realizes they're fucked, realizes they're both gonna die and gives up his one get-out-of-life-free get pill to his badly tortured, already dying friend, and that is one of the most heroic and decent things I've ever seen on fucking film. That's, that's not the way I interpreted what was happening. Hmm. Uh, the way I interpreted it was he intended to go in there with a cyanide pills as soon as they said, there's no way we could get him a cyanide pill, and he's like, there's only one way I can help my friend at this point. But, uh, you know... It, they don't exactly say i mean he purposely writes a note that's like don't look for me so we're not exactly clear on what's going on yeah like my, my first major uh, thought with this movie went in it was like seven beauties feels like the funny version of this movie <laughs> like do you get where i'm coming from martin i i think maybe i haven't, I haven't seen that. Kind of get that um <laughs> I, I mean i lack context uh, have, have you seen Seven Beauties? The uh, I have. Le- I have not. It's a, it, it's a similar um, like really bleak World War Two movie. It deals with like uh, like very heavy uh, similar crossover, but like it's a really uh, it's part like body sex comedy and part like uh, like just really really dark bleak humor to like to the extreme of like to like the further extreme you can take it. Interesting. Interesting. It's it's not an so it's easy a, one. a laugh a minute. I think it's very funny, but uh, Vert Mueller. <laughs> but Vert Mueller uh, is a strong taste for 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 if you haven't seen her stuff. 
I will keep that in mind. One of the, and one of the things that I found really interesting on this watch, having fall like I went directly from Leon Morian Priest into Army of Shadows, was the ways in which Melville pays attention to the moments of normality amongst a deeply abnormal situation mm-hmm. that you know, when we first meet our protagonist Gaultier who is played by the great Lino Ventura um, that in the midst in the middle of this detention camp he is locked up with these three crusty fogies who are more interested in their dominoes game than in anything else and it's just like Okay, then I'll just go over here and befriend the communist. And then um, you have the, the officers club where they're just dancing away, and then and there's and it, uh, I think London's being bombed. Yeah, and, yeah and, and it's like they're acting like it's totally normal. It's like oh, this is like this is like kind of funny what's happening. And, <laughs> like, and, it, and so that they absurd. take the time. They, they celebrate um, the resistance leader being awarded a medal by. To go by going to see Gone with the Wind, right? And France will not be free until everyone can see this wonderful movie. Yeah, apparently, uh, and Tume told me this a while ago that, uh, uh, like one of one of the uh, criticisms of of Army of Shadows was it was pro De Gaulle to some people. Yeah, I, and, I, so, yeah. and so and so that part of the reason why. Um, yeah, because it like, I mean the the. Algerian war, I guess, was sort of a big kind of like, oh, wait, like we're not on the yeah. right side of things, and you had a lot of students protesting, and that kind of yeah. fit yeah, and, and, still, which, yeah. uh, and De Gaulle was you know, kind of like a, a dictator, more or less, of France for kind of a long time after World War II. He kind of, kind of uh, took over. I, I, found, I think he was elected or something, but like something happened. He was in power for a long time, which caused some uh, a number of issues. It, uh, it's too 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 much to get into here, but like it's, uh, I feel like, it, yeah, it's just a whole. It's another layer. That, like I'm not sure how many people here really know like what De Gaulle did after the war. I, I know I, I the do basics, it. but I don't know what you guys are talking about. What's what's okay. a De Gaulle? Okay. <laughs> the goal of this guy coming yeah. in here talking about this. I, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I guess we got one of them smart guys on this show. <laughs> what, what else you, you want to say, smart guy? Gangster. Have we stumbled into another Melville film entirely? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I, um. Yeah, I mean, De Gaulle. He, he was. He was the leader of Free France during the war. Um, after that, he was president and like you know the, I mean this film's coming out like in the late 60s so I can kind of tell you how long he was president for yeah uh, again okay, that's why I said dictator sure. yeah yeah and it's I, I granted this is I am not a I am not a historian so this is going to be by nature a very broad comparison I think like like Churchill de Gaulle was exactly the right person to successfully lead the French resistance during World War Two. That did not translate to just civilian rule, from what I understand. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's a little can of worms to get into, but let's. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but well, there were uh, also like the the famous student protests in um, 
I think there were 68, right? Yeah. I remember, well, um, like, Out 1 was kind of like, I, I think um, Jacques Rivette was kind of like, oh, yeah, that's when French New Wave ended, was with the, the like, May 1968, uh, like, yeah. denouncement of Charles de Gaulle. And then, like, this film comes out, and, it, like, it's kind of maybe an infamous case of bad timing, Army of Shadows. Yep. Um, where it's it's not necessarily like the kind of politics that people want to be seeing on screen at that particular moment in time Um, even like within the film itself like how it kind of treats the resistance it's it's not like uh, not exactly red the blood of angry men yeah no like I mean it's like unvarnished already but then you know you have them kind of killing collaborators and then like collaborators reporting on them and it it gets like very you know I mean like I've already said it it gets very messy in the the politics and in the kind of history and I I mean when when do films like that ever go over well (laughs) you know yeah I, I mentioned like Lee, yeah, this... I, I mentioned Vermeule earlier. Like in Italy, she was heavily criticized for a number of things because her movies are like distasteful and conf- and confronting things. You know, Italy did not want to uh, deal with or talk about when they That's when interesting they came to me, out. Because like over here, I just have like zero perception of like oh yeah, like you must all love Lena Vermeule. Like it's, <laughs> she's great, right? Like <laughs> you know, you don't always have the context for certain filmmakers. I still remember I was talking like at. Um, I think it was like the filmmaker that uh, Close Up was about and then I was like oh like I was kind of interested to see like the the film that they made that gets referenced in, in Close Up and like I knew this like a running guy who's like oh like that, that guy's like a terrible person and this and this and this because like of these and these the reasons which were all kind of like over my head and I would just remember like ooh like <laughs> realizing you sort of can step into um, you hmm. can step into it if, if you're watching a film from uh, another country where you're not necessarily familiar with the politics or you know what the filmmaker said and stuff like that. But yeah, uh, like I, I think um, I'm trying to remember where I heard this. Like somebody was saying, like the the phrase Melville used to describe himself was like, um, "Oh, I'm I'm a right wing anarchist," which like I don't even know what that is. But I, I think like that also kind of like stuck to his reputation and you know made him not popular at this particular moment in time yeah. where he was I'm not just, like, sure not the right yeah I'm, I'm not sure. the... yeah I'm not sure like what his politics were like because like his movies seem kind of apolitical kind overall for most like he's interested in politics but it's not like you know like to mention Vert Mueller again like it's not like Vert Mueller yeah. where like like her her um anarchist feminism is like like the point like part of her movies and with like like, like, look at the Melvins I've seen. It's like, well, politics aren't really that heavy of a thing necessarily. I, I think, like, I mean, the, the impression like, I get from his films, and, like, I, I haven't read, like, deep into Melville's biography and stuff like that. I kind of know the, the basics, but, like, my impression are, my, my impression is that his politics from his films, it's like, uh, the most human thing to be is a hypocrite, and to deny that would be hypocritical. I feel like it's kind of the recurring <laughs> thing I, I get from his movies, and, um, you know, I think he's sort of open to the, the ways that people can be contradictory and the way yeah. that like ideology does not necessarily define the human experience and yeah. you know that people can be uh, 
you know, yep. so, sort of <laughs> in, in outside quadri- their own ideologies, and that you know these are not necessarily the things that like govern morality, but I, that, like that's my kind of impression from from hmm. watching some of his films. I don't know if you guys would like agree with that or disagree with that, but well, that's the, 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 my, it got me deeply feeling, curious yeah. about what would have happened if he and John Milius ever met. But I, I don't know if they'd get along. Like I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, like there is a non-zero chance it ends in a giant fist fight. <laughs> I mean, sometimes filmmakers you think might like hit it off, uh, don't don't like each other's work or don't get along. Like I was thinking, um, I think uh, it was like, oh, sorry, go go ahead. Uh, I, I saw something on some point, like at, I, I think it was like the Oscars or Golden Globes or something in the eighties, and. Uh, Someone, I forgot who it was, uh, was talking to Fast, uh, Rainver Fastbender, and Fastbender said, I, "I'll beat them up for you. I'll, I'll, I'll beat the shell if you want me to." And the guy said, "No, no, don't, don't do it. <laughs> it's fine." Or I remember, like, I, I heard from somebody sort of secondhand the story about like Harmony Curran going up to Todd Salons and being like, "You're everything that's wrong with cinema." And I'm like, "Wait, what? Like, I don't get." It. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't get like how, how did you end up you know but sometimes you get so like wrapped up in like especially you know when you're talking about filmmakers that have a very like specific idea of like what a film should be uh you know whether that's like politic uh, politically stylistically you, you know what, whatever like some people are very kind of opinionated you sometimes find somebody being your like ideological enemy that like <laughs> you know for an outside observer you wouldn't necessarily expect but they think about stuff like that sometimes where it's like wait how I, they hate each other for some reason that I can't quite discern <laughs> yeah uh, that'll oh. happen <laughs> sure. still I would even if it turned into a fist fight I'd love to see that fist fight oh yeah no, I, I think I think Melville would, would put up a pretty good fight I mean like I, I like that he kind of adopted that tough guy persona for part of his career um you know he looks like a character that would be in a melville film I, he looks like someone a... who would take the name melville from herman melville yeah, which... yeah. <laughs> well, have you ever seen the movie uh, two men in manhattan i know that he's in it that yeah. I, I have not seen it it works better than like i like i the way people talk about it where it's like oh like melville went off and like he he went to America and made a film kind of starring himself and it, it sounds like such a like toss off kind of movie and then you watch it and you're like oh this is really good he's he's good and you know some some filmmakers like uh, I always said this about the Kurosawa that like I, I kind of wish Kurosawa had like acted in one of his own films just once to kind of see what that's like because he's hmm. you know this like tall larger than life kind of character already you know and I remember there's like the, the photograph of uh, Kurosawa and Mifune from Venice where they're all like dressed up in suits I'm like you know, if you if you talk to somebody who doesn't necessarily know and ask them like, you know, which is the movie star and which is the director, I don't know if they'd necessarily win that bet. So, uh, I, I don't know. But uh, Two Men in Manhattan's cool if you want to see Melville like in in the persona of Melville that he's defined for himself, and, and it's a pretty good film too. So, cool, <laughs> cool, uh, yeah. You yeah, know, going uh, around with the the fedora and the sunglasses and the the coats and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm. Uh... Did the Hong no is Hong Kong guy? What's his name? Uh, John Wu. Uh, no. Uh, Ringo Lam. The one who did Fallen Angels and oh, um, Wong Kar Wai. Yeah, the, 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 is he? He seems like a Melville type of guy because doesn't he have like the sunglasses at all times and he has like I a certain persona. I know that Wu has definitely championed Mel- Melville and I think may have played a role in getting at least one of his films restored 
I, yeah. I, I don't know. I, if, I, I think don't know. If... Samurai, that was like, I, I think John Woo kind of put his name behind that to kind of get it restored and get it re-released. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, saying but like, that's... oh, this is like my, my favorite film or whatever. But doesn't the Wonder uh, White does go around with sunglasses okay. all the time? You're, you're correct. He's, he's okay. indoors doing interviews with sunglasses on. So. <laughs> You know, and I think like a lot of filmmakers do kind of develop, um, you know, an image or a persona that kind of goes beyond, uh, you know, how, how it might be behind closed doors when the cameras aren't running. Like, uh, I remember there's this like documentary about the making of the Inland Empire. And it's almost weird to see like David Lynch not in the like kooky grandpa persona that he's kind of like built up in recent years where he's just kind of being himself or you know there's like a couple times when you watch like some of the, the clips from the making of like uh, Twin Peaks The Return uh, there's the one where he's getting mad about like not having enough time to shoot a certain scene and it's almost oh, yeah. like oh wait like you know he's that, that's one where he says who yeah. gives a fucking shit <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I love that clip but you know it, it, like I, I feel like um, you know he's, he's definitely somebody who has like a persona that uh, kind of extends beyond just you know what his personality is but that, that's a lot of filmmakers i don't think there's yeah, yeah. anything wrong with that okay. like melville you know especially like taking on the name melville and kind of you know turning himself into one of his characters in a way it's it's kind of yeah, it works it all works I'm fine. Yeah, i mean i mean given his war experience like he could back up like i'm sure he could back up the, like the tough guy thing if if need be because yeah. like I, I know like john houston was a tough guy and he actually like, i don't know like there are a bunch of stories of him like fighting people and like him winning the fights and it's like yeah like because john houston like was lived a crazy life and like he could prove he lived a crazy life <laughs> yep yep anyway uh, joel you've been quiet for a while uh what what do you like about um army of shadows i really like the shadows part you know the the you know the singular shadows not the whole army that was that was kind of too much and it is a no. gorgeous film yeah, it's, it's like the restoration looks fantastic. It's very moody. It's very gloomy. It's it's like I don't know. I I would love to have a film that looks like this. It looks great. Yeah, uh, I, I yeah. enjoy that the protagonist is this like he's really no nonsense about like everything that comes up. You know, in the beginning scene where we're talking about like he doesn't talk to the old man, but he does talk to that young communist, and it's like you realize. Well, this guy's recruitable. You know, he's already got alternate ideas to what's going on. If if we were to escape, maybe we'll figure it out. And then uh, when they get taken to that hotel and just a guy he doesn't even know sitting next to him on the bench. It's like, this is going to be our chance to escape. Okay, I'm going to ask the guard a question. You run through those two doors and then just boom, knife through the head. Like, you, you see the, the kind of hard measure this guy has, like... And when he has to return to France, because, you know, uh, he's like, he's been kidnapped. Exactly. And he's like, you know, have you ever parachuted before? Like, no, (laughs) but I'll figure it out, basically. And he only hesitates for that one second. And probably because that English guy was yelling at him in English. But, uh, well, I mean, that's the thing. Like, Gautier, part of makes him so fascinating is that he is a tremendously competent resistance leader. He is capable of navigating the morass of morality of leading ar- of armed resistance to an occupying power and he's also really 
new to it. Now there's that sequence when they're in the beginning when they're executing the traitor, he and his he and his he and his crew are just like, we've never killed anyone before. None of us none of us like this at all. But I thought it was just the one guy. Uh, the well, new, not, like the new recruit, almost like a test or something. Yeah, I, I took that as him trying to like calm the recruit and be like, uh, it's like bullshitting him. Like, yeah, we haven't done this either, but like just as, as a way to like just get him to relax for yeah, like for maybe a them it's specifically executing a traitor and yeah. executing a traitor in a like protracted and painful fashion. That yeah, yeah, and that's uh, like like. I, uh, like the, the the look and cinematography and everything is this like it, it uses like the the muted color palette like the correct way where yeah. there are many examples now of it used just for the sake of it and or I'm not going to go down that road of shitting on stuff but like uh, but like watching this is like oh this is how like it should be used because like it fits like it it makes sense with like the mood and everything. And like with and the story. And there's variety within it. Like it's, it's a consistently bleak-looking film, but the bleakness of the isolated village where they murdered a traitor in broad daylight is different from the bleakness of the Nazi torture cell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like, and there's a couple, there's a, a couple sequences that like, like just blew my mind. And one was the submarine uh, transition to the city was just like, oh my god, that's like. Like, that's the way it's edited together. It's so smooth. It's like, oh man, this is cinema. And there's like, and the, and the music that's playing is this, this is a little moment was just, just, I couldn't get over it. It was incredible. The, the editing's was... phenomenal. Like, um, my favorite sequence in the film, it's when the Nazi officer has them down that, like, uh, strip where he's saying, well, you know, you're going to run as fast as you can and we're, you know, we're not going to open fire right away. We're going to give you a chance, and then starts like firing the machine gun at them. And like, it's the editing, the tension, the kind of dread all come together in that scene in a way that's, uh, for me, like incredibly effective. I've, I did yeah, a comparison uh, with that in my uh, in my apocalypto book to the, <laughs> the scene where they they're running down the ball court and uh, get the arrows and everything shot at them. But um, oh, for, yeah. like, for me, that, that was kind of like the scene of the film where you just feel like everything's firing on all thrusters, and it's like, wow. I want to bite deflate everything. That feels like certain certain stunts in Jackass where it's like, they're about to do the stunt, and you see them be like, why did I oh, fucking okay. do this? <laughs> okay, no no joke. I last night watched the, the new Jackass movie, mm-hmm. and I, <laughs> I think that's a good point. I was like watching the... I, I think it's the... <laughs> I mean, it's there's a segment where somebody's trying to kiss a snake. Yeah. And it's like the, the actual bite is not nearly as bad as watching the like lead up to it and the dread. And I, I think there's something to that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the the dread building for me, like that's kind of what makes that that sequence effective in Army of Shadows. It's like more that than the actual shooting. You know, I mean, there's a lot of like. Uh, violent stuff happening in this film but I, I think that like anticipation that feeling is, is really awful I, I think it's great yeah, and it's like, and it's like and the, the, the zoom s- oh, sorry. Uh, uh, all, the, all the more so because that that sequence comes after a protracted series of of anticlimaxes where oh, 
the, the mission to rescue Gauthier's buddy fails, and it, it doesn't fail in a hail of gunfire, it fails like, no, he's, like, as a doctor, I cannot let you move this dying man who is, who my bosses have tortured because he'll die in pain, and it's like, oh, okay, goodbye, and then when Gauthier is pinched by the collaborators, uh, it's, it's not a dramatic flight from them, it's just like, hi, we have guns, you're a prisoner now. Um, and like and so there's this there's finally this release of tension that has been accumulated for the better part of half an hour hmm. and it's like another tension scene was like during this where was it uh yeah it was during, during like the escape in the beginning where or where, where was the guy on the bench and where he stabs the guy like there's no music it's just a ticking clock the whole time and and them being in like, in the you know like uh, the uh, the main guy is like clearly playing something. And it's like, is he actually gonna do it? And it, and it feels like the clock gets louder as it as the scene keeps going. It's just and it keep and it's, it's stretched like to the like as far as as far as it can possibly be stretched. Yeah, and it like. Uh getting into it like it helps that Ventura is like Riva and Belmondo in Leon Morin a really wonderful physical performer you know, when he makes his escape in the opening he just fucking books it it's not elegant it's not stylish it's just like I am getting the fuck out of here and I'm getting the fuck out of here as fast as my feel take me I'm also terrified and not, can't necessarily hold it in so I'm just gonna book it and that doesn't fully dissipate until he receives the unexpected aid of the barber who he was had reason to suspect might turn on him because of the whole Patane poster yeah and that is just such a great like physical actor like even like the way his face looks and you know like he's got the history of boxing and wrestling and stuff and he just looks like somebody who's really like been through it and uh, I feel like especially at this point in his career too where he kind of feels like physically kind of past his prime and haggard and I, like something about his his like physical presence and his look I, I think adds a lot uh, just on its own yeah, and uh, like there's a reason in Second Breath like he's worked so well in that movie because like he can like like he Conceive, like he can't play like the like career criminal like uh uh versus fighter type like so convincingly like it you, yeah. and you, you like you, there's no there's no, never a moment where it's like he's just some actor it's like i genuinely believe like he probably has done some of this stuff in real life he seems like a real tough guy on screen like i feel like that's something that uh you know not every actor can pull off it's just like like robert forster Robert Forrester? Yeah. Great face. Oh, um, yeah. He acts with authority just by his okay, presence. Yeah. yeah. And, and he's a great kisser. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I mean, dude could tell a love scene, but... Like, uh, I, would you rather get kissed yeah. by Ventura or Belmondo? Uh, hmm. I, I just derailed the whole situation. <laughs> I mean, Belmondo, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. Je- Jesse Ventura? What? 
heard you talking about wrestling or boxing. I was like, what? Okay. Lena Ventura was a wrestler. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, pro wrestling's old. It goes back to, like, the Carney days. Yeah. Was De Gaulle involved in that, too? I don't... I wouldn't be surprised. (laughs) Okay. I wouldn't want to boss De Gaulle because he's pretty tall. Yeah, and I... Of course, now now you have me picturing De Gaulle, like, donning a masked persona to wrestle in secret during the occupation. (laughs) It is I, totally not Charles De Gaulle. Charles De Gaulle does not wear a mask. Uh, I do. Do you ever ever watch the Adventures of Young Indiana Jones? Uh, I've read tie-in books. Okay. My uh, elementary school library had a bunch of them. There's an episode with with Charles De Gaulle in, like, World War I where they have to, like, escape from a German... uh, prison that's almost like a I think it's in a castle or fortress and like their plan is to like sneak out by hiding in these coffins and Charles de Gaulle's just like too tall for the coffin and like, like <laughs> crack his legs basically to fit in this thing I, I I feel like that's where I learned that Charles de Gaulle was a tall guy see how you learn something from from Indiana Jones <laughs> but, um, yeah I mean wasn't that series ostensibly pseudo pseudo edutainment I think like, it was. I, you know, I, I don't want to get in trouble, but I, I like as a since I was a kid, I, I like those more than the Harrison Ford ones because they're more just like into history and not, you know. I mean, it's cool watching Nazis' faces melt and guys like age really fast. But I, I, I was a history nerd, so I, I like that. Uh, yeah. Joel, you have been like twelve when that show was on. Did you watch it? No, I, I probably it was probably too scary for me. When you were twelve, I was a scaredy cat, man. I was, oh. I, I didn't even get to, I didn't see my first horror movie until I was like twenty something. Oh, that's, that's not true. But I, I, I purposely avoided like any violence or anything that was a sign of scary. Like a twelve year old, I, yeah, I was still oh. playing with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Okay, weren't you terrified in Jurassic Park or something? Yes, but that's my story. That my story with that is like I had my I was into the movie and I was like super excited for it to come out, but I hadn't I didn't really know about the story. So my parents had got me this like young adults version of the like the novelization of the movie. So when I went to go see the movie, I was like, oh, this is the part where the Raptors are about to do something scary. Uh, I got to go to the bathroom (laughs) like four times. So, yeah. Was it 94 or 93? 93, I think. Yeah, 12-year-old Joel. Boom. Well, I was two years old, and I didn't see it until a couple years later. And it, and I was I, I was five or... Well, I went five, and it was terrifying. I think oh, I, might, I must have seen it at, like, six or seven. And there was a dinosaur exhibit that came through Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Bill Nye was there briefly to open it. And I was super excited about Jurassic Park, which my mom was really mixed on because she's hated horror ever since she and her then boyfriend went to see Alien in the theater and Ooh. the chestburster got her. Hmm. That's a, Wait, that's in real life, is she is she okay? Yeah, she's no, good. She's, she's good. Um, okay. I always think it's funny when like like my, my mother will like avoid anything horror, and then she'll be like, "Oh yeah, Hills of Eyes, that movie's great." It's like, wait, what? <laughs> but I don't know. It's I, I have gradually been helping my parents. Or have like a horror movie that they're super into for whatever reason. And then you're like, mm. 
that's a horror movie. They're like, no, no, it's a thriller. Yeah. I've gradually been helping them push their boundaries a bit. Like summer, like Halloween of 2020, I showed them the endless last year. We watched, um, the haunting of Bly Manor. Interesting. Yeah. uh, I, yeah, I, my, the only horror movies I know my dad likes is shining. Get out. Although I, he wouldn't call get out a horror movie. I know that for a fact. Um, that's about it, really. My mom, I think she likes Zombieland, and that's about it. Yeah. See, the true horror wasn't war, it was dinosaurs. All along. Yeah. That, and, and one thing that I do want what, to... What, getting back to, like, Melville as a humane but utterly unsentimental filmmaker like one thing that one thing that I find striking having seen Leon Morin and Armachetta's back to back is that the Nazis are horrific in their evil and they are simultaneously ridiculous there's that bit in Leon Morin where the officer reacts really badly to some kid giving him lip. Oh, yeah. He's like, I'm gonna screw in my monocle at you, kid! Don't you see how intimidating I am? Times have changed. <laughs> and yeah, with, like, Ar- oh. with Army, the it's the sheer casual baked-in cruelty of the occupation. That, that they would that the sadistic torture of of a prisoner is regarded as so ordinary that doctors are like no no I can condone his torture but I can't condone you moving him that would be a, that would be cruel now <laughs> leave, just leave him with with a torturer yeah but that and, also brings up the whole thing of like well survival are, are you going to be yeah. You know, like a lot of these movies bring up, like, are you going to be a coward and just go along with things, or are you going to stand up and potentially get tortured to death? Yep. Which, like, what's the the A Hidden Life, the Terrence Malick movie, is basically yeah. about, like, what do you do in that situation, but follows, like, one person? I mean, it's. Yeah, that, I, it's a real historical person that A Hidden Life is based on. His, uh, his Isn't he now a saint? Maybe might, I, he's either I he's either a saint or he's really close to being sainted. Might be well, blessed. I, I don't keep up with who gets sainted or not. I'm not no. a, a Catholic, but like, I mean, to me that, that part of that film's idea, like, I, I think it's sort of like what you're talking about, where, like, at what point does fascist ideology fail? Like, it's it's a flawed ideology, and it's because it's this idea that, well, might makes right, and we get to decide what's moral. Otherwise, we'll kill you and torture you and it's like if you stop saying uh, you know if if you say like fine fine kill me then all of a sudden you see like this whole ideology comes crumbling down and I, I think like that's a really powerful thing and it's it's painful and you know it, it hurts like not just you if you're getting killed but your family and that's kind of part of a hidden life but it's like yeah this this ideology you know that it's scary but it's at the end of the day like it's it's wrong it's wrong and it's uh, it's deeply pathetic. It's faulted and it's you know, you know like I mean another another great 
kind of wartime film I, I always think about is the uh, downfall, the uh, German film about Hitler in the bunker. And like to me, it was sort of like, I, you know, it's history, but it was also kind of a great metaphor for this ideology turning in on itself. And it's like, of course, at the end of this whole Nazi thing, these guys are all shooting themselves and murdering their families and shooting each other because it's like, who else do you have left to shoot at that point, you know? Uh, yeah. But they, I think, like, it, it's it's hard to find that strength to say, you know, like, all right, at, at a certain point, I don't care if you kill me or not, you're wrong. <laughs> you know, you don't get to decide what's, what's moral or what's right, but, you know, you have to be very strong to fight that. Yeah, and uh, going off like that, thing like when watching like these types of movies and then looking at like what's happening in america now over the past uh uh decade or so that where it's really you know gotten you know uh, been ramping up like when you look at like the fascism of the 20s and 30s there's a uniform message and there's like a uniform and lifestyle and there's like uh like you look at like the german uniforms like there's like they intentionally made it so that like the, the like the colors are powerful and like the the cuts are strong and stuff and so like, it's memorable to look at when you look at the nazis over here they dress like they're going to like a country club and it's like that doesn't look cool at all want to hear an old uh, czech joke about uh, nazis uh yeah please uh what's the difference between an essay and a dung beetle uh, what? what? Uh, the essay, the essay is brown and shit's green, and the Beatles green and shit's brown. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, uh, you know, people always were sort of picking on these guys and making fun of even just like the way they dressed up. <laughs> but, yeah, but, but uh, like, but essay like, were not yeah. not as well dressed as like the the you know yeah. Hugo Boss wearing SS, but but then you, you yeah they didn't necessarily like... inspire Tom of Finland. <laughs> but then you look I mean, at stuff like, like sort of what uh... you're talking about too. Like I feel like there were a couple films in recent years that were trying to address fascism in a sort of like a roundabout way that could be applied, like you know, to to present day. And like I remember, I was joking when the when uh, Jojo Rabbit was like up for the the best screenplay Oscar, and I was like, yeah, it was good, but it was also like the fourth best film to, to deal with fascism that came out that year. <laughs> um, you know, but um, yeah. have you guys seen uh, the Bresson film uh, Man Escaped? Uh, Man Escapes. Joel? No, I, yeah, I, so I've I seen set a up the screening of it, but I wasn't in that class. Oh, okay. So. But, uh, I mean, that that's another... I think that film might be a good pairing with this, where it, it's about this... Um, it's based on a true story even though like Brasson kind of changes some things and I think like makes some things a little bit autobiographical but like it's this um, student who's locked up in a German camp who's kind of like waiting to be executed at a certain point and he's he's methodically kind of working on this escape plan and um, there's a great bit towards the end where they throw this you know, kid who's like maybe like 14, 15, 16, like around that age, who's wearing like this uniform that's a mix between like a German and French one, and he got thrown in for like desertion. And, you know, the, the main character's not sure if he can trust him or not. Like, yeah, like, is he just here to spy on me if I'm gonna try to escape? And like, eventually he sort of decides, and like, Brasson is, is religious, and like that, that film compared to like Leon Morin, like, I think Brasson is more like, oh no, like, this is why I believe in stuff. But, um, 
you know, that the character decides to take a leap of faith and escape with this, like, uh, kid in the German uniform, this, this teenage kid, and then they escape together, and he sort of realizes, like, oh, like, I needed a second person to help me get over this other wall, and if, if I'd gone by myself, I would have been stuck, and, you know, it's, it's sort of about taking that leap of faith, but in, in another person, and, um, I mean, Leo Moran kind of touches on that, like, well, uh, Sorry, I keep kind of jumping back to Leon mm-hmm. Marin, but like one of my favorite bits of exchange is when they're talking about faith, and he was saying like, "Well, we all have to make this jump," and like, you know, if there are facts that explained everything, then everyone would believe, and you know, faith wouldn't need to exist. But you know, it's, it's like you all have to kind of take that jump. You know, I mean, there are times like, uh, you know, it might not be even something religious; it might be, you know taking a leap of faith with another human being but you know you do kind of have to have faith in other people sometimes i think you know if you if you can muster enough faith in the humanity to get there but um yeah yeah and it's that, i mean that makes for an interesting contrast with the you know, like by necessity merciless nature of resistance work in army like where you where you have to trust that the, that the Nazis will fall, that yeah. you you may not live to see it, and you may yeah. you 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 may have to burn your soul I mean, down to nothing to make it happen. One of the but, most brutal things about like Army of Shadows is like these characters, you know, they're they're referring to people who like didn't make it to the end of the war. You yeah. know, like and like you said, like it, it is an act of resistance is also sort of an act of faith. I I think in a way that like hey this thing that we're fighting against it's unsustainable or it's wrong or you know so even if you die in the process you're sort of trusting that you know you're going to do your part to bring it down or that uh you know you're just fighting it for for yourself morality for yourself for your soul i guess you know if you if you believe in that but you're basically talking about like the civil rights movement in america that you know from like the quakers to to the 20th century of like you know fighting against a system where like you know like there's, there's reason like a lot of them in, in like uh, I think of like W W E B Du Bois like he died a bitter old man because he, to him like America will never change he fought his whole life for a change and then he moved to Ghana as an old man because he's like fuck this shit I'm just, I'm just leaving it's not worth it in anymore you know like it's you know it's it, it, it's a, a it like the, like you know, it's a, it's a message in like a theme that's applicable to a lot of things. Yeah. Let's start. Uh, let's start rapping. Okay. We all got like introspective that's, there. I think. Yeah. That, that, well, yeah. it's not like. It, it, it's why it's our, part of why part of why the movie is so good is like it just yeah yeah it, 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 it buries down into the heart into the head yeah all right i'll go Get first stuck there I'll, uh, armor shadows is easily available everywhere uh priest i believe has a criterion I, yeah I both army priest. and priest uh, have army was recently reissued because there's that weird period where canal yanked the rights from criterion i think priest is still in print too 
I, I checked on the website when I was looking up the, the essay and the cast list and stuff. I think it says out of print. I still have my DVD, but it's... Uh, I got mine from the library, so... Yeah, hmm. uh, hang on. I'll pull it up right here. It's on Criterion uh, Channel if you're looking for it, too, if you have yeah, that Yeah, on, on the service. website, the Criterion website, it says out of print for both the DVD and the Blu-ray. Hmm. But... Uh, Maybe uh-huh. that I mean it's it, it's it's Canal has the right so hopefully whatever is causing to causing to reissue Army and now the Red Circle means they'll get back around to it. Maybe or Fingers I think crossed. Kino released some of these also like I, I think they released last year at Marion Bad kind of recently. So yeah, yeah. That, that was almost an episode, but I'm too I'm too dumb to talk about that movie. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's like. Um, have you ever read the book Morel's Island? Uh, or the no. Island of Morel? Um, it, it's like one of my favorite. It, it's a short book uh, by a South American author, and it's it's like one of the best kind of sci-fi memory, you know, sort of interesting books. And I'm like, oh, this would be like an amazing movie. And then I checked, and it's like, oh, they, they made a movie three times, and they're all bad like one of them's got Anna Karina and it's not so bad but like it's like oh none of these really work the way I pictured my head but then you find out that last year last year at Marion Bad uh, was was heavily inspired by this I'm like oh okay that that makes sense and hmm. for, for me like that almost made it easier to kind of get into last year at Marion Bad from the Nosferatu it's the Nosferatu thing all over again <laughs> maybe yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, all right so for that for uh, we're going to do recommendations one for 60, 61, and one for 69, because uh, Priest is 61, then Army, Army, Army of... I'm going to say Darkness now. Army of <laughs> uh, Shadows is 1969. Uh, I, I have a couple uh, quick ones. Um, the 1961 one is uh, Nude on the Moon. They had a bunch of Dwarf Twishman on Cartoon Channel. And it's great. I love when I love that they're embracing sleazy auteurs now, like George Wishman. Uh, I don't know if you like dumb. I'm not saying dumb. If you like like trashy B movie stuff like this, like a, a oh, like 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 John Waters, but even subpar to early John Waters. Like it, it's a it's a specific flavor, but I like George Wishman movies. They are our special breed. And usually like an hour long. What what is that movie about? Nude um, people on the moon. Yes, nude people on the moon. Wow. Okay, that's all the plot we need. Yeah. And uh, all right, like, is there a moon base, or this like on the surface of the moon without clothes on? Uh, there there are a whole civil- civilization of people who are who are on the moon who are humanoid, but they're naked. Also, the moon looks like a backyard, but huh. yeah. <laughs> I mean, all her movies look like her yeah. house because they were her house. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of tempted to make a joke about on the silver disc now, but I, I haven't seen that really movie, weirdly so I was can't. like a, a reference point on something I, I was like uh, at a small part working on that was going to be called uh, Journey to the Planet of the Half Naked Space Woman. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was like part of the research on that. <laughs> uh, all right, and uh, my my 1969 pick is Go Go Second Time Virgin. I was talking about that on Movies from Hell, because Bradley loves Wakamatsu, uh, and he got me to watch Wakamatsu, and now I want to watch every Wakamatsu movie there is. That guy was really fascinating. Uh, he was an like, independent director. He had his own studio. He kind of worked outside of the system. Uh, 
I believe uh, a lot of a lot of his stuff you have to get illegally or gray market. But if you look on archive.org, you can find GoGo Second Time Virgin with subtitles. And uh, oh, and Beat Takeshi is in. I think it's his first movie. He's really young. Wow. In oh, it, weird. he's. I think he's one of the rapists in it. Oh yeah, uh, um, con- warning for rape in the movie. Just oh, I was gonna like say, like Jeff Goldblum get... in Death Wish. Hmm. It, it, like, isn't one of Jeff Goldblum's very first roles like rapist in Death Wish? Oh uh, yeah, I think Wearing he's the one hat. who. I think he's the main one in it. He's in the, the one who looks like Jeff Goldblum. I think he's the one who like kills the wife or something. What the hell is the the movie you're recommending about? Go go you're, second you're just, time. You're just what? telling it why you like it. What's that about? Uh. A girl is raped what the on, a, a on a rooftop. Time Watch the movie. A girl is raped on the roof of an apartment building, and this guy uh, stands by and watches. They kind of become, become a couple, and they just, like talk for an hour, and then they kill themselves. And it's Jeez. I don't know. Like, it's such a like it, it's just a weird special movie. That I don't know how to really sum up. Like you have to experience it for yourself. Okay. It's also Sounds an hour. Sounds like a masterpiece. It like it. If you look up reviews, like it's, it's it's like uh, it, it, like Wakamatsu is re- it, like it, that's considered like his masterpiece because it's really fucking good. It's just hard awesome. to sum up quickly. <laughs> I had some. some I books, like a m- but no, but there. But I the books I recommended before, so listen to other episodes. They hear me rec- I, recommend books. I like a movie that's described as you have to experience it. You can't really describe it. So that's Wakamatsu for you. Like you can't really describe Wakamatsu movies. You have to watch them. Mm. Mm-hmm. Who wants to go next? Um, I'll go if it's a good heel. No, it's not okay with me, actually, Justin. No, yeah, yeah, please. Clearly, we should we should fight to the death. Um, <laughs> That's right, the wrong so, podcast. So, for 1961, I both these are admittedly well known. So I apologize if I'm yanking someone else's film. Um, but for 1961, it's Kurosawa's Yojimbo, which is Toshiro Mufu- one of Toshiro Mufune's great roles, and. It's one of two Kurosawa films that I watched the night I was diagnosed diabetic in the emergency room. And I'm not sure if I remember the whole of the film, especially as I like, remember the specific experience and clinging on to Mifune's magnetism as just something that I could... Uh, an island of normal for me in the midst of what was a very scary transformative time. Um... At some point, I'd like to revisit it under less trying circumstances. Um, and for 1969, Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch, which is, like Army of Shadows, a very, very bleak, very gorgeous gorgeous film. And I think it'd actually make a really fascinating set of companion pieces because of the... Their, their narrative arcs are essentially the opposite of each other. In, in Army, you have a group of deeply moral people forced to do an utterly hard thing out of necessity. And in Wild Bunch, you have a group of amoral bastards who grow a conscience at the very end of their lives and choose to act in a 
semi-decent fashion because it's all they have left. Right. Um, yeah. That's and, a, those are good choices, that's yeah, what I say. And I guess if we're doing um, book recs, I've been reading a really fascinating illustrated mystery novel called Come to Light by Paul Madonna. He is a he was based in San Francisco for very many years, got evicted. I'm not sure if he's still there, but his time in the city informs his work. He was known as a one-panel cartoonist who specialized in gorgeous architectural work and rather dry commentary. And he decided to start experimenting with mystery novels, integrated his illustrations as the in-novel work of their protagonist. Um, Come to awesome. Light is the more recent of the two, and it's from, it's strong enough I think you could jump right in, especially since uh, Close Enough for the Angels, the first book, is interesting. It also feels very much like a first draft of this concept, and it's raw enough that it's actually a minor, it's actually a fairly significant story point in the book that it's a raw income that, that, that its predecessor was a raw in places very frustrating work it's a really really fascinating read and you know appropriately enough set partially in France so I was I was just complaining to somebody about how if you pick up old books you know you tend to see a lot of like drawings in them like whether it's just a couple of pages that are stuck in the middle, you know, the, the kind of way that they stick like photo pages back in the old uh, the movie adaptations I was just talking about. Mm -hmm. But also, like, there'd be intricate drawings at the top of the page for, like, chapter and, changes and or sections. usually have, like, the photos in them, too. Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. Five Came Back, for instance. Yeah, there's um, an Iggy Pop bi uh, biography with a whole section of pictures of him, and one of them is him full frontal nude, which was... Uh, when I was reading it when I was 14, I was like, what the fuck? Because I didn't expect to see a penis in, in, the, in the book. It, it's a good read. His life is really interesting. His penis is a good read. Yeah. Awesome. And today in rare sentences. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a one from like the early 2000s because I, yeah, when like 2003-2004. Back when you were a young buck. Martin, please. Oh, uh, so my 1961 pick is a film from Argentina called Il de Hombre by Lucas de Mare, who was kind of like one of the big name sort of workhorse filmmakers in Argentina. And it's based on a book called Il de Hombre also by uh, Augusta Roa Bastos, who's like a famous Latin American author who kind of escaped Paraguay and moved to Argentina and then eventually moved to Europe and he's the uh, same author as I the Supreme which I think uh, well just in a couple of recent years got like a new translation and kind of like a big release um, it's starring Francisco Rabal and uh, Olga Zuberi who's like a famous Argentinian actress Rabal he's mostly known for like the Luis Bunuel films but uh, he's also in uh, Sorcerer the hmm. William Friedkin film and this film is like a precursor to that it's it's sort of similar to uh, Wages of Fear a little bit where it, it's set during the War of Thirst which was between Bolivia and Paraguay which is like one of the most horrific and pointless wars ever uh, and it's about a water truck driver who's 
trying to relieve this uh, battalion that's like literally gonna die of thirst and um, Olga Zubari plays like this uh, prostitute turned nurse who kind of goes along with him and like there's a lot of religious imagery there's a lot of like illusions but it's also really really bleak um, and it's sort of like these characters who kind of feel like they maybe missed their chance to be happy phenomenal phenomenal film like I, I think like one of the best of the era like of the classic Argentinian cinema which was like fantastic if you ever get into those films there there's like some really really great movies there the finale's got like the the hero his hands get shot up so he just like wires them to the wheel of the truck and he's like driving when it's on fire it's like mind-blowing it's so good it's so good i wrote a whole thing on it for uh the pinksmoke.com Cool. Right, I have to uh, add this to the watch oh, list. Hold on. Okay, because that's not familiar. And I was like, oh wait a second. I read, I read your piece on that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my 1969 pick. It's a movie called Birds, Orphans, and Fools by Yuri Yakubisko. Uh, it's a Slovak film. Yeah. Oh, have you seen it? Uh, it's on my list of Czech slash Slovak movies I need to watch. But okay, it's yeah, I, I, I would highly recommend this. I don't know why, like Leon Marin, kind of made me think of it it's it's almost like a like color of pomegranates but funnier and sexier <laughs> if that makes sense uh hmm. I, I think it's a really cool film and just like a good sort of palate cleanser film at the same time uh and i don't know if we're talking like book recommendations uh, the most recent thing i read was uh, the Strugatsky brothers the doom city which like a lot of people consider their magnum opus through the sci-fi authors who wrote uh, roadside picnic which stalker's based on they wrote hard to be a god bunch of like famous science yeah fiction the stories. new the, the new universe was their big, yeah. big thing yeah right? the mm-hmm. doom city is not part of that there was this was like a novel that they kind of wrote in secret that was uh shelved for uh, you know over over 10 years something like 14 years a little bit like uh army of shadows where you, like you know you you couldn't really the see anger the ussr <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, it was like pretty, pretty uh, incendiary material that they were kind of dealing with. But it, it's like a weird and funny and bleak kind of story. Uh, like a lot of people do kind of consider it like their their best thing that they've ever done. It's never been turned into a film, but I, I talked about it on the uh, the Pink Smoke podcast recently. I think the Patreon version's up if, if anyone subscribes to them. And then there's going to be like a wider release version. You can hear us... Hmm. dig into that uh that meaty novel and talk all about uh, ideology and i don't know it's, it's like yeah. it's a pretty cool setting where it's this like experiment that's maybe being conducted by like aliens or angels or devils or people from the future or you don't know what but you know there's this like a city that's um, got like an abyss on one side and a wall on the other and you have people from all these different kind of periods in history and different backgrounds and there's like fascists and communists and americans and chinese people and you know they're all kind of living together in this uh experiment so i don't know that was yeah. that was cool people okay. might want to check that out yeah <laughs> okay yeah um since the, okay i do have a quick book thing uh joel you mentioned before because I, re- I was editing the second breath episode and you we talked about the parker novels for like 20 minutes at the end of that oh one. Yes, yes and that got me thinking you might like the harlem detective books if you like kind of like is that the, devil, devil of the blue dress no that's a different book series <laughs> okay this yeah, that's is, easy rollins and he's out in california 
Yeah, a Howling Detective was what Cotton Comes to Harlem is based off of, but the books oh, yeah. are a lot meaner and more or less like cutthroat with like the violence and the humor. And uh, but uh, hearing you t- describe like how much you love Parker's, like yeah, these these characters feel like they could cross over with Parker. Okay, I definitely gotta check it out then. And they're they're quick reads. Uh, I ah. guess like. One, I guess the only weird thing of the books is because of censorship, they can't say motherfucker, so they say mother raper. Which <laughs> Why is that better? It, it feels so much grosser to read like mother yeah, raper over terrible. and over again. It, it's it's both slimy and it the flow is really weird. I don't yeah. like that at all. <laughs> yeah, that's like the one really weird part. But mm. uh, but oh yeah, since we talk about World War Two movies, I want to bring up the Simbin movie. Camp the 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 Theroy. it's on YouTube in full. Uh, it's kind of hard to come by. It's like the only African World War Two movie I've I've ever seen, and uh, it's uh, I'm gonna use the the I word. It's important, but it's also really fucking good, and that's the show. And it shows the African perspective of World War Two and how it affected, um, specifically Senegal. But there, but it's kind of a alluding to like the whole colonized part of the continent and yeah it, it's a deeply upsetting movie but uh about some... Salil O right huh you're talking about Salil O uh, Camp the Theroy oh that's a different one okay yeah we might do an episode on it cause it's on YouTube still mm. and no one ever fucking talks about it but it's it might be my favorite Simbin yeah I think like as far as Simbin film this is one that you know if like Criterion never puts it out on, on Blu-ray people are going to go nuts for but yeah. uh, it's like I, wait a minute Criterion put it out it was important the whole time Vault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I mean they, they, they have two Simbin movies out so maybe yeah. and they have a, a Nigerian film coming out pretty soon so it's like hey they listen to people yeah the YouTube one looks not the worst like i've seen worse looking senegalese yeah. movies on youtube uh just in terms of like transfer and like how rough the print is but like th- this film I, I think would really benefit from a restoration like yeah and i remember like, i think uh, i forget if it was maybe it was when we were talking about uh, shala but the, like yeah. we talking about the mandabi restoration where mm-hmm. i was like wait a minute this film looks great like what, what happened <laughs> Yeah, you know, when like, they came like, out with the restoration, you could see all the colors and like the patterns and, on the and, and black girls. Like, oh, Sunbin yeah. was a great like visual like director. Yeah, yeah. So we need yeah. rest- rest- restoration of his work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that'll that'll take time. But anyway, yeah. So Camp the Theor- Camp the Theoroy, which is in full on YouTube. Um, that's over two hours, but it's totally worth it. It's my f- I have heard Sunbin, one of my favorite World War Two movies, and the Harlem Detective novels. Uh, nice. Yeah, they are really good. Yeah, I the only Simbene I've seen is Fatkine, and that was mm-hmm. I, I had a really really great class on um, gender and sexuality in francophone film in college, and our professor was from I want to say he was from the Ivory Coast. Um, mm-hmm. Neat guy, neat guy. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I've been told by people they prefer the the French. You say the French. Uh, version of Ivory Coast, but I don't know how true that is. A, a British person told uh, me that, so I'm not sure if they uh, were fucking with when me. When he not. introduced himself, uh, he said Ivory Coast, 
but that was also okay. going on 10 years ago now, so the the language may have changed. Okay. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. yeah. I, I've been called out on saying Ivory Coast by some people, so I just want to kind of... Good to know. <laughs> bring that up. Uh, all right. So, uh, Justin, you write for a couple websites, and... Uh, I yeah, th- I think you have a you've been a podcast others besides us probably. Yeah, um, I am the film editor for the Chicago-based film website The Spool. Our my current big exciting thing there is that I am spe- I I am the point man for the return of our filmmaker of the month section. First one I worked on was Jane Campion, which is wrapping up now, and we're moving on to Michael Bay for something completely different. Um, it's been a real, real treat to work with folks and to see, basically to to edit, to help folks bring out the best in what's in, in a strong body of interesting work. Um, I have two pieces up at Neotext, at the Neotext Review, which I'm really proud of on comics. In one case, it was examining the topic following Spider-Man, Spider-Man as a response to Twin Peaks, and the other one... Huh was just my gushing about um, y- um, Yoshikazu Yasuhiro's um, Gundam The Origin, which is a stupendous comic and one of my favorite things in Gundam, which I will happily gush about for an a- for, for hours on end. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. We gotta have you on another time so we can talk about some certain Gundam stuff, because I have some strong oh, opinions yes. on at least one Gundam series that's not positive. Oh. <laughs> Which one is that, dare I ask? Uh, Double Zero. Double Zero is a great first season, and then it just falls the fuck apart. Yeah, that that, but, that sums it up, but there are other problems I have with that one. <laughs> that, yeah, I, you're the yeah. one person I could talk to about it, <laughs> it turns out. I, I'm a well, Pat Labor guy, so I can't talk to I, you about it. <laughs> I picked up the entire series um, on sale last year. I've been hoping to, di- I've been looking, I've been hoping to dive into it. Uh, Pat Labor, that is. Palabor is awesome. I, I love it. It's uh, it, it's kind of different than Gundam, even though it's it's giant it's, robots. It, it, it's very different from Gundam. It, it's, it's like it, let's, it's let's like, make it's a compelling sl- procedural drama that just so happens to have giant robots in it. It's really good. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's it, it's slice of life in a world, and they took the care to and to dig into the minutiae of how the presence of these mecha would affect life, the universe, and everything in in Tokyo, a few Tokyo, not too far in the future. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, are... a truly bizarre movie, but that's yeah. It's well. Yeah. Um... I, the, the first movie's great. The second one's even better, and then and then there's Wasted Thirteen, which yeah. is <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, are you going to be on any podcast or anything in the next few months? This will probably come out in the summer, I think. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I will have been on. I, I mean, I, I will almost certainly have had. In, in that case, like, hopefully, Filmmaker of the Month will be much further along than Michael Bay. And I will probably have appeared on an episode of the Filmship podcast talking about John Milius, specifically talking about Red Dawn and mm. the fascinating what's it that is which also featured an extended a tangent where the host, my fellow guest and I, imagined John Milius' Nosferatu. Hmm. I'd watch it. That sounds pretty interesting. <laughs> he, he, Count Orlock would carry a chain gun in his coffin. 
<laughs> yeah. It'd be uh, really right wing, but still really interesting. Milius <laughs> um, is a is Mil- Milius is. Oh, he's he, he he's a character. <laughs> that's a that's a good word for him. That's a good <laughs> yeah. word for him. It's why I, I would have loved to see him and Melville meet and possibly go at it. Yeah. It's like, I mean, there's a whole thing with him where it's like the poetry of this sort of like macho, violent world. Like, I've, have you ever seen the TV show Rome? I have not. I know okay. that's that was one of his last projects before his stroke, right? Yeah, and like, oh my god, some of the dialogue is so great and so milius and like the, you know, the way they'll swear is, is fantastic where they say like, you know, oh, it's hotter here than like the tip of Vulcan's cock and stuff like that is so great. Um, that, that's one of my favorite TV shows ever. But mm. All right. uh, Kessler. He's got a, oh. there, there's a milius flavor, you know, and uh, I like the, the sound of Conan the Barbarian and stuff like that. And yeah. It's, uh, it's all kind of mixed in with the history in Rome and it's a, it's a really great show. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, K Dog, are you are you gonna be uh oh, you said mentioned Pink Smoke earlier, are you gonna yeah. be on Wrong Reel or anything like that coming up? Uh probably. Um I, I'd say the best place to go to find anything I'm up to is over on Twitter. Um at Movie Kessler and that's where I kinda stay up to date with uh little podcasts and writing projects and movie projects. I'm working on a big, big thing that's kind of about architecture and science fiction. I'm gonna be talking about the Blade Runner sequel in THX 1138 in this um, manga called Blame or Blam uh, and uh, that's kind of been in the works for a little while now so people can maybe keep an eye out for that if that sounds interesting to them at all okay yeah you'll return for Django and yeah um, the leopard I just got the, uh, the, the new arrow video blu-ray for Django or 4k yeah. I guess uh, yeah, I think so it was- Anyway, so Martin, I just followed you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Wait, I'll, I'll uh, follow you back. Hang on. Uh, J Dog, uh, what? Uh, this will come in summer. Uh, do you want to? I don't know. Are you going to be on any shows? Do you have what games are coming up in your Let's Play? Yeah, I'm going to be on a show called uh, Shoot the Piano Player. Uh, it's a new okay. French new wave podcast. And also the arbitrary, indiscriminate movie podcast, which I also do with Spencer and Melanie Daniels, wherein we watch movies. But we we definitely did not going to know what movies we're doing then, since they're no, selected sorry. randomly. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I, yeah, as for video no, games, sorry. My, no, that's fine. My my let's play. Um, if you look for JDD Games uh, on Twitter or. Well, yeah, you can go to my Twitter account, which is at JDT Games. On YouTube, you should be able to find me under JDT Games. Uh, uh, the last one I was G-A-M-E-Z. working on. Uh, oh, no, no. G-A-M-E-S. Okay. The regular way. And it's the same icon you see here in the recording for, for me. All right. Uh, right now, so like, yeah, this is the future. Right now I'm doing Day of the Tentacle Remastered, but I'll definitely be done Okay. By, by summertime yeah, uh, Elden yeah. Scroll I don't know how far or not Elden Scroll Elden uh, Ring I yeah. keep I keep doing that weird uh, but we, we, yeah it's just gonna I be want, playing that yeah, I want to mention the, the important thing that we did uh, will hopefully have been recorded by times comes out uh, for uh, our arbitrary instrument movie podcast 
uh, you talking about for over my my life for a little bit i was i was watching no movies reading nothing i was just playing <laughs> elden ring for yeah. like the, the three weeks after it came out well martin yeah, I saw we're, that. we're gonna talk about on our other show real housewives of salt lake city because that series geez it's you have to watch it i i, I guess i have to yeah it it's very cringy <laughs> All of them are cringy, but it's the cringiest. Yeah, you, you need to watch it. I mean, it. it's like it's sort of a guilty pleasure. Where like sometimes I'll, I'll watch like trash TV with my girlfriend. Like yeah. a, one of our favorites to watch is the Ninety Day Fiance, where we're just like, this is awful, and we like root for for people to dupe each other, and it, it's just like brings mm. up my worst impulses. But sometimes I like trash TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I gotta stop talking because I've seen enough of that. I, I there's episodes I remember that I want. No, it was, this is going on too long. Let's stop. I'll be on <laughs> Movies from Hell uh, talking about Wakamatsu. I'll be on Mustachio Podcastio talking about War 20, from 2019, the Indian action movie. And I think that's it for guest appearances. And then maybe my my review of Face of Another will finally be up on Jailhouse 701. Or maybe not. I have to actually... I have one paragraph left to, to to work on, and I haven't worked on it for over a year, so I probably won't get to it by this comes out. But maybe I will. Who knows? Uh, yeah. So uh, this will be around. Yeah, I'm not sure what's coming out around this time, but uh, the stuff we'll have multiple epi- uh, episodes will come out around this time. I can tell you that much. So uh, think. Oh wait. Uh, Justin, did you say where you are on the internet for people to find you? Yeah, I did. Um, okay. Best place to find me is a spool. Um, you can follow me at. I'm relatively active on Twitter these days. You can follow me at at j j sean s e a n harrison. All right. Um. Yeah. I'm following you now, so folks can follow you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so uh, if you if you're made this far, watch Melville movies. They're they're good for your soul. Yes. And that's it. Uh, okay, we're we're done. Shut it. Shut down. All right. Shut it down. Shut it down forever. By the way. The show can be found on Twitter at Piano Player Pod. Our email is still highlowpod at gmail.com. You can find a show on Spotify, Podbean, and various other places where you can find the podcast. Our intro music is by Vivian Fop, and our cover art is by Sarah Roberts. You can find her art, sarahkathleenroberts.com. And thank you for listening.